0: to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place.
1: Hi, everyone. It is Wednesday night. It's our favorite night of the week, and we are so excited to be here with you. It is time for Friends and Fiction. I am Patty Callahan-Henry. I'm Mary Kay Andrews.
2: I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey.
3: I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is Friends in
1: Fiction. Four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, librarians, readers, bookworms, all of you. And tonight, we have such a special night ahead of us. We will be welcoming Sadiqua Johnson to talk about her newest, which is a Reese pick the instant New York Times bestseller, The House of Eve. And Lynn Cullen will be here with her newest, The Woman with the Cure. These are two historical fiction novels that open our eyes to the hidden things of the past. So settle in, turn off your distractions, because you are not going to want to miss a single thing tonight. Except that Patty's going to miss a single thing. (laughs) I'll tell I was going to tell you in a minute, but yes, I am going to be missing the second half of the show, but I want to tell you that I read The Woman with the Cure and I was, as a nurse and as a reader, obsessed with it. So I am out of town and have to tap out at 7.30, but I'm very sad to do so. I jumped the gun. Oh, <laughs>
3: uh-huh. wait, we're, we're so traumatized that you're going. We were like, we can't even address the show. Yes. <laughs> Hello, I'm sorry, and I think we have guys- to talk about
1: this. <laughs> you guys want it? Let's all talk it through. Let's <laughs> <laughs> let's gather
4: yeah. around. At- what are,
1: we- are leftist left
4: instructions?
5: It's gonna be okay. <laughs> what are our feelings about it? Okay, <laughs> okay. Mary Kay, go ahead. Well, I'm having a lot of anxiety now. <laughs> I have my anxiety. Where's meds. your wine beeper?
2: <laughs> I got my anxiety meds right here. Yeah, okay. we are
5: here to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. One way you can help support us help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own org page where you can find Sadiqa's and Lynn's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount.
2: And do you know about our signed first editions? This is a great year because we all four have a new book out in May, June, July, and September. So we have a Friends in Fiction first edition subscription available now from the indie bookstore Booktown in Manisquan, New Jersey. And this subscription features signed hardback first editions from each of us And this cute Friends and Fiction kitchen towel that says dinner can wait. It's time for Friends and Fiction. You can order them. It's actually cuter than that picture, to be honest with you. The picture does not do it justice. (laughs) (laughs) You can order them right now at booktown.com. That's booktown with an E at the end. This is an incredible gift. A lot of us have actually been donating them for charity auctions. So if you are someone that has to donate something for a charity auction, This is a really fun gift or anything at all. So every month on pub day, a signed first edition will show up on your doorstep or the doorstep of the person that you're gifting. So lots of fun. (laughs) I
3: love that. But tonight right here, um, we are going to be live with Sadiqa Johnson and Lynn Cullen. So let's get started. All right, ladies, let's introduce Sadiqa.
5: Sadiqa is the international best-selling author of several novels and the recipient of the National Book Is She's Club New York
2: and- Times best-selling now. Sorry yes. to Yes, Two, yes, two weeks in a row, yes. row baby. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Oh, I guess it's time to toast.
1: Okay. Okay. Cheers, I Sadiqa. <laughs> She's I not have on yet. My nobody is answering my wine beeper in a hotel <laughs> room.
5: Nobody you got to get your publisher to put you in a better hotel. That's all
1: I'm saying. <laughs> right. no,
5: oh, right? Okay. They need to up the game. Okay. Let's talk about Sadiqa. She is uh, the recipient of the Phyllis Wheatley Award and the USA Best Book Award for Best Fiction. Her just-out novel, The House of Eve, was chosen as a February pick for Reese's Book Club.
2: Incredible. A former public relations manager, Sadiqa spent several years working with well-known authors such as J.K. Rowling. B.B. Moore-Campbell, Amy Tan, and Bishop T.D. Jakes before becoming an author herself. She even worked with our own Meg Walker at one time. Oh, that's so cool. Her novel,
3: yeah, I love that. Her novel Yellow Wife was a 2021 Goodreads Choice Award finalist for historical fiction, a 2022 Hurston Wright Foundation legacy finalist, a BCALA literary honoree, the Library of Virginia's Literary People's Choice Award winner, and a Barnes and Noble book club pick when it came out in paperback. Woof! That's amazing. So, <laughs> Sadiqwa's
1: novels have received starred reviews from Kirkus and Library Journal.
3: Originally from
1: Philadelphia, which is where I'm from, Sadiqwa currently lives near Richmond, Virginia, with her husband and her three children. Alan, can you bring Sadiqwa on?
4: Hey, Sadiqwa. Guys, I was backstage, like, raising the roof. You guys make me sound so cool. Thank you. You are so cool. Yeah, we're, we're your hype it. girls. I know I know that phrase. We're your hype girls. I love it. I love it. But it's not like we made it up. Oh, right. it up. You, you did
2: it, so we didn't
4: yeah. make it. I mean. We
1: got together, and we were like, let's make up a bunch of really hyped stuff. <laughs> and then talk about it. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, we are so glad you're here, my friend. So when I first read your really, honestly, it was such a, made, made me tear up. Your moving post about being chosen as a race pick and also about hitting the New York Times list. You, in both of those posts, you recall the time when you sold books out of the back of your car. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy. I'm, oh, I'm getting teary. So happy for everything that has happened for you. And it made me think back on the days of trying to get published. And so before we dive into the book, I want us to all chat a little bit about that. And so, ladies, I'm wondering about each of that moment for each of you when you found out that you sold your first book. Where were you and how did it feel, Mary Kay?
5: Well, I um, basically scammed a trip to New York. I was working for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So I scammed a story so I could go to New York and I had been talking to an editor at Harper Collins, but I didn't have an agent. I had an agent interested, but she was out of town. So I went by myself and I went to see um, the late um, dearly loved Larry Ashmead at HarperCollins, And he casually said, yes, we want to um, we want to publish your first book, which turned out to be every crook and nanny. We want to offer you a, a hard soft deal for two books. And so I, I mean, I floated out of that office and I called my husband at work. He was out of the office, (laughs) but I had a good friend who I'd started newspapers with, and he was working in New York at the time. And to celebrate, he took me to the monkey bar where, yeah, where Meg and I, and and my agent just had drinks last month together. So that was a great moment.
1: That is a full circle moment, baby. That is.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah.
3: How about you, Kristen? Um, I, I remember exactly, it was uh, April 1st, um, 2004, so almost exactly 19 years ago, and I remember it was April 1st, because it was April Fool's Day, yeah. and I thought it was, I thought it was a joke, <laughs> I thought when my, when my literary agent called and said, Warner Brooks would like to make an offer on your first novel, I was like, that is so mean, why would you call me and say that on April Fool's Day, like, I totally thought she was messing with me, <laughs> but, That's
2: awesome.
3: sorry, not a joke. Here I am still here 19 years later. Oh, I love that. Yeah. How about you, Christy?
2: Yeah. I mean, I remember it so well. So um, I, the publishing house kept pushing the meeting where they were going to make the decision about the book. And so every week they would be like, you know, you'll find out this day, you'll find out this day. And I was just tortured. I mean, by this point I was like, I don't even care if I get a book deal. I just need to know. Like I just need yes. to know. Get it and over with and rip off the band aid. Yeah, exactly. And um, so we in our old neighborhood, I had just like strolled will to preschool, like little bitty preschool, and I had just gotten back home, and I was standing in my bathroom of all places, and my agent called and said, you know, you you've you got the deal, and you know they're offering you a two book deal, and I remember him saying, um, you're gonna have to call me back because you're not making sense. Like I don't even know <laughs> what I was saying. And you know, you picture the moment in your head, like this is what it's going to be like. And I'd always pictured like, oh, I'm going to like drive to my husband's office and I'm going to call my mom. And I didn't do any of that. It was like nine in the morning and I walked downstairs and I got a bottle of champagne and a glass and I sat at my desk and drank champagne by myself. And I was like, <laughs> I'm oh love that. I'm, i, I'm, I I'm going to be an author. Like this happened. That's this is a awesome. thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. That gives me chill bumps. Christy,
1: I was in carpool. So same as you. I was, um, I was picking up my. Uh, daughter from carpool. And I was in line and we had cell phones. They flipped, but there was a cell phone <laughs> and same thing. But Sadiqua, I have to know, we have to know. What? what did you do when you got the call about the respect? We want to hear, we want to
4: be right there with you. Oh my goodness. So I was home, um, in a ratty t-shirt. My hair was all over my head. I was not looking together at all. And I was probably writing. I had my writing look on. And my eight, my editor, you, 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 you know how oh, yeah. we look when we're writing, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. That's, that was my look. And so my editor was like, hey, could you jump on a quick Zoom call? And like, in the back of my mind, I was like, should I fix myself up a little bit? And I was like, yeah, she probably just wants to talk shop. So I jump on, and there's all these people. Like I should have known because both of my agents were there. There were like a few people from Simon and Schuster I didn't know, and then she made the 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 announcement that uh, Yellow Wife um. or not Yellow Wife, The House of Eve was the Reese Witherspoon pick. And she said, but the caveat is because the book was scheduled for March 7th, she said they want to move the book to February. That's the caveat, and I'm thinking. Reese can publish my book tomorrow (laughs) if she wants to. That is not a caveat. So that was it. And I was home. My husband was home. So I was able to grab him. They even have him on film as I'm telling him that I was the Reese pick. I'm the Reese pick. And so it was just a wonderful moment. It's like one of those things that you like feel like your life should be changing, but it's nothing like when it actually changes. Do you know what I mean? Like you can feel the universe conspiring to give you what you want, but it's still not the same as getting what you want. That's awesome.
3: awesome. Sadiqa, how did you keep it quiet for all that time? Because you weren't allowed to say anything, right? No, only my husband knew. I knew if I told
4: my parents, the whole city of Philadelphia would have known. The, the Eagle Stadium would have been plastered with Sadiqwa is a re-stick. <laughs> so so I, knew, I knew I had to keep quiet. Um, so I just sort of tried to make myself forget about it, you know, and just like focus on other things. So it wasn't too hard to stay quiet. Oh, good.
1: That's awesome. Uh, Meg just wrote in the comments, a mummer's parade. That made me laugh. Yes, yes. All right, Sadiqa, we are so happy to talk about The House of Eve. You know that I was the luckiest, and so was Kristen, to get an early copy. So I've been a fan of this novel for a long while. It is about two women, Eleanor and Ruby, in 1950s Philadelphia and how their lives collide. And at the center is a home for unwed mothers. That's what it's about, but Sadiqa, I want you to tell us what it's really about.
4: Well, The House of Eve was inspired partly by my own family history. I remember my grandmother telling me that she was the black sheep of our family. She got pregnant with my mom at 14 and had her at 15. She was unmarried. She didn't have a husband in sight, and it was a lot of shame. It was the early 1950s, so there was a lot of shame around this. Uh, my mother tells me that she didn't know that my grandmother was her mother until she was in the third grade, because there was so much secrecy that they hid this pregnancy from everyone, including the daughter. And this got me thinking about what choices women had in the 40s and the 50s. And it sent me on this deep dive, and I discovered these maternity homes, where between 18, uh, 1943 and 1975, million babies were surrendered in these homes. And I say surrendered because oftentimes these young girls were forced uh, to give up their babies. Sometimes they went into the homes and they knew what they were doing, but they might change their mind, you know, but that was never, never an option. So that was sort of the beginning for me of threading through the story of the House of Eve.
5: You know, I can remember um, as a young kid, there was a Florence Crittenden home in St. Pete. And the only thing we knew, um, I had an older sister and a younger sister, and we knew that that was where bad girls went to have babies. So when we passed it in the car, we would all hide our heads.
4: Oh, oh wow. God. And Mary Kay, it's so funny you say that because my original title was Where the Bad Girls Go. Oh my God. That kept, that kept coming up. And uh, the house in the House of Eve is based on the Florence uh, Crittenden home in Washington, DC. So we're, uh, we could have, we could have wrote this together. Yeah, well, you know, my, my,
5: you know uh, I didn't know this for many years. My mom was pregnant with my older sister um, before, and she lied about, they lied about their wedding anniversary for many, 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 many years.
1: Wow.
5: And so, you know, that was just a, uh, was a fact of life. Okay. But we're not talking about me. Let's talk about, it's fun to talk about you though. Yeah. <laughs> Um, We see both Ruby and Eleanor's points of view as they try and make their own path in the world until their lives intersect. And each voice is is so distinctive. How did you feel bouncing between their points of view in such opposing worlds? Was there one that was easier for you to write than the other?
4: Yes, Ruby actually came first because uh, Ruby was based sort of on on my grandmother. So I could see her, I could feel her. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I knew, I knew how it felt to be her sort of walking through the cities and the sights and the sounds. Eleanor came much later. She actually was not even a planned character. Uh-huh. When I sat down to write the story, I thought it was just Ruby's story and that it would be just about these maternity homes. But while I was outlining, I was sitting in my office one day and I felt this presence. And it was so strong, and it was so angry, and it was so determined, and I could feel the rage coming off of her skin. And she was like Sadiqwa, like I need help. I, I want a baby. And I thought, oh, okay, hang on. I wasn't expecting you, but let <laughs> me write. Let me write down what you're saying because I do believe that you only have a smidge of time to capture those characters, or they're gonna leave you, and then you're gonna go to
2: Booktown
4: Books and. Christy's name is gonna be on um, a book that I was supposed to
2: write because I let the character go. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. You better watch it. I'm coming for your character, Sadiqa. <laughs> I'm coming for <laughs> Yeah. So I
4: had to really pay attention. And once I realized that the story was about two women um going through life and that there were gonna there was gonna be this thing that pulls them together at the middle of the story. I sort of had to write them separately. It was my first time writing a novel in two different voices. So I would write Ruby's voice, all of part one, and then let it sit. And then I would write Eleanor's chapters, all of part one. And then I would figure out what the access points were and sort of thread the stories together. So that was the best way I knew how to conquer it.
5: Yeah, that's that's great advice. I've got the story I'm working on, starting working on, I'm going to have two different um Characters, points of view, and I'm I'm still struggling with what to do about that.
2: Mm. That's, a good way That's to really it. interesting because I'm at this place where I have this one. I mean, this is like something I'm just starting, but I have this one character like really strongly, and I know there's another one, but I just like I don't have her yet. Like I took I her. She, I, I took her. You <laughs> took her. <It's> because Patty <laughs> took her. She's in Patty's next book now. They they I took her. her. I totally agree with you, though. I mean, it's like that whole the big, big magic, right? That, right. Yeah, yeah. rights like, if you don't take the story, somebody else is going to, and you know, you got to jump on it. All right. Big so,
4: magic changed my life, Christy. Once I figured really,
2: that out, I was like, pay attention, girl.
1: Yeah. Yep. Pay attention.
2: Yeah, it's so true. It really is. And I think, um, well, that actually leads really well into, you know, my question, because you were here last year talking about your first historical novel, Yellow, Yellow Wife. And now, you know, of course, this is your second and I know the research must have been really intense because you can really feel, you know, 1950 Mm -hmm. on the page, including, you know, language that we would cringe at today all the way down to, you know, the soda pop. So um, (laughs) tell us about that research, but also do you feel like this was a story that sort of found you?
4: Yeah, I absolutely feel like it, it found me at the moment that I was ready to write it and also at the moment that my family could handle it um, because That's I so like literally it. had to root around in my mom's childhood and expose yeah. all of her secrets. And wow. and I've always been taught, my first writing teacher said, you have to write like your parents are dead, which means you have full permission to write whatever story is on your heart. But I still wanted to, like, sort of run it by her to make sure that she would be okay with me doing that. But um, the research really came from books, obviously. You know, I read a lot of really wonderful books on maternity homes. There's a book called The Girls Who Went Away by Ann Fessler. And it really details a hundred stories of women who went into these maternity homes and what their lives were like. And Anne was great. I sent her a couple of emails, we corresponded a bunch, and she sort of helped me sort of frame the story. Um, Another book that was very helpful was Our Kind of People by Lawrence Otis Graham. And there is a section of the book in Eleanor's life that really talks about the very Black wealthy families um, of Washington, DC. And that book sort of helped me make sense of what that world was like because they didn't just let anybody into their fold. They were very specific about the people who they interacted with. Yeah.
2: It's so interesting. You know, it's so interesting too. It's like, you think about all the things that your family probably went through and how it paved the way for something so incredible. You know, you just, you never know like what, what you go through. Like, I mean, gosh, generations later, I mean, it's having this huge ripple effect I'm
4: um, glad you said that because I I always feel like I stand on the shoulders of giant women and it is never lost on me that I get to do this because they sacrificed what they sacrificed
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah I love That's that, that I love that uh, well a few real people from history do appear in this book like Dorothy Porter so can you tell us about her and the decision to include real people
4: Yeah, Dorothy Porter is a woman after my own heart. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing Eleanor's Themes, Eleanor is a student at Howard University in Washington, DC. And my favorite place in the world is the library. So of course that's where Eleanor gets to work. (laughs) And as she was working in the library, I was just doing some research and I came across a woman named Dorothy Porter Wesley. And she was a librarian, her career spanned over 40 years. She amassed the largest collection of Black, African, Caribbean art, artifacts, stories, pamphlets, diaries, music, all of that. She was called the shopping bag lady because she was known to root around in people's dusty basements and smelly attics. And she said <laughs> that she would go and grab artifacts that the untrained eye would not know were treasures. And oh, she wow. brought all these back to the library. And so... She also had a problem with the Dewey Decimal System because at the time there were only two sections for anything that was African or African-American. It was slavery and colonization. And so she created space to make the whole story sort of play out. So she is definitely a hero that people don't know about. And I think that is my purpose when I'm writing historical fiction. is to shed a light on the lives of these women whose stories go untold.
5: That's part of the theme for the night tonight, really. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And I love that because I kind of feel like you rooted around in your family's attic and like came out with this story that you took an expert to know was something worth telling. You're kind of the, the Dorothy Porter of the story, you know. Yeah,
4: Yeah.
3: that's probably why she spoke to me, Chris, and I'm probably the Dorothy Porter of my family, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love that. So Sadiqwa, your editor wrote this, and I love it. She wrote, this novel is a reminder that literature's true purpose is not only to reflect the conversations of the time, but also to start a conversation about how our times can be better. So what Mm -hmm. do those words mean to you? And what conversations do you hope that this book will open?
4: I hope the conversations around the book one is that we see ourselves in the story. I always write characters so that you could see yourself or you could see your grandmother or you see your neighbor and that they're relatable. Because as women, we're all going through this together, right? I mean, this story takes place pre Roe v. Wade, right? And we know that when I was on draft five, that was when it was overturned. And so We're all having these experiences together, but also the women of our history and of our past have had these experiences. And so I want us to dialogue about this. I want us to have conversations and share our experiences and know we're in this together.
3: Yeah, that's such a good point. So... I also want to read something else um, that, and this is something that you wrote in your author's note. You say, I wrote this book for women like Georgia May and for every woman who was forced to surrender her child because of age, sexual abuse, shame, or coercion. You were not alone. The house of Eve is for you. I know Patty and I talked about this. Patty said it gave her chill bumps all over. I, I, I absolutely love it too, Sadiqa. Um, I know we've talked before about intentions. So how do you feel your intention to write this book Affected um, affected the story. They, your intention to write the book for the women affected the final outcome.
4: I always feel like the ancestors are with me when I'm writing a story, and um, they're whispering to me. They're they're egging me on. Um, they're giving me their stories. They're giving me material. I mean, you mentioned Georgia May. Uh, she was a real person uh, who I stumbled upon. She was uh, a, a 14-year-old girl from Richmond who was in a maternity home and was forced to give up her, her child. It was her second pregnancy at 14, and she was pregnant by her employee. So these stories are lost, you know? And so I want to be intentional about giving a voice to those who did not have a voice because they matter. They matter.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. All right, Miss Christy, you're up. So I'm sorry. That was me. I, know, I, know <laughs> I was like very, I was very like into what we're
3: saying.
5: I, know. I, know. I, was so, I was so involved in trying to, you know, process everything you were saying, Sadiqa. I
3: know.
5: Um, and then
2: I was know. like, oh, that's me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our favorite part of the show, selfishly, but um, do you have a writing tip that you could share with us? No. Do you have a tip of how to become Reese's pick? That you- <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's what we need. That's, is that the tip you want? Okay. That would really okay. help if you okay. could just,
2: right. like, give us a little hint. Okay.
4: You need a vision board. I keep. I told you guys this the last time I would. Yeah. Sonali,
2: and Sonali Dev just said this too. She was like, my vision board, it was Mindy Kaling. And she picked, yep. like, yeah. her imprint wasn't even a thing.
4: <laughs> my vision board was Celebrity Book Club Pick. Mm-hmm. And as I, as I create my vision board, when things start to happen, I go back and I highlight it. So I write my whole vision board in a black Sharpie. And then when things come, come, when I manifest, I highlight it and I say, thank you. What else can I have? That's the tip. Okay. So it doesn't have pictures. It just has words. I, I'm, I'm past pictures, Patty. I started with pictures like 15, 20 years ago where I used to cut out the pictures from the magazine. But now I feel like I'm moving into being like a really good manifester that really all I need is the words. I just need the that. words. I need to see the vision and I just need to be intentional about it. So vision, vision. boards. I, I just that. want to
3: see that vision board, Sadiqua. I do. <laughs> Sadequa, do, do you do that? Do you do it for work or do you do it for everything in life? Like is there a life vision board too?
4: So there's one big vision board. And so in the right from left, in my left hand corner is is work. Um in the middle is sort of like personal. And then uh, in my right corner is my family. I love that. So that's how I separate it. Yeah, because I always have to put happy, healthy family on there, and you know, a good mom. You know, because I got those three teenagers, so I want to be a good mom to them. You know, so and not. yeah. Good wife. I mean, I, you know, that's kind of part of it too. <laughs> I don't think
1: you have to manifest that. I think that just happens.
4: No.
5: Yeah.
1: All right. So do go, And we don't want to, but before we let you go, will you please tell everyone, I know you're on the road, where can people find you online and in real life? Cause you're on a tour.
4: Yeah. So tonight I am speaking at the Ontario library. Um, I'm doing. If you go to my website, forgive me, my brain is a little foggy, but I'm <laughs> on the West Coast all all this week. Um, I know I'm at Tattered Covered on Saturday. Oh, I am with our beautiful friends in San Diego, Adventure by the Books on Friday. So awesome. go to my website. Go to my website. It has everything you need. My husband is my web designer, so let me know if you think oh, he's done a good job. Oh, great. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my web address is Sadiqua. Actually, I think you can get it now just Sadiqua.net. Oh, wow. I'm trying That's to be great. a little bit more like Oprah, right? Like Oprah. Yeah. Is oh, yes. so I think you can get it, Sadiqua.net, but you can also get it SadiquaJohnson.net. I am on Instagram and Twitter as Sadiqua says. And also you can find me on Facebook.
1: Sadiqua. Thank you so much for joining us. The Friends and Fiction Family, as always, wishes you the absolute success. And we are celebrating with you. And cheers, my friend. Cheers. Thank
4: you guys. Thank you so much for creating this platform for us. I appreciate you guys. We love you. Thank you. All right.
5: Okay. What a
1: conversation, right? Like every time he talks, I feel like I learned something new about um, historical fiction, about tapping into our past and our ancestors. Um, But now we get to talk about another historical fiction novel, The Woman with the Cure that opens our eyes to the past.
2: But before we bring Lynn on, we have a few things to tell you about. You know, we don't just interview authors here on Wednesday nights live. We also have a book club on a separate Facebook page called the Friends in Fiction Official Book Club with Lisa and Brenda. So coming up next, they will be discussing The House of Eve by tonight's guest, Sadiqua Johnson, on March 20th at 7 p.m., which also happens to be Patty's birthday. So big night.
5: <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, we have our writer's block podcast that drops every, I love saying drops. I feel so (laughs) never gets old, never, never gets old. Also on our Facebook page, we'll always post a link to the latest episode or you can find it on all major podcast platforms. For our most recent episode, Ron and I talked to Kristen May Chase about her novel, A Thousand Miles to Graceland, which is so funny and endearing. I hope you all will pick it up. Coming this Friday, Ron and Patty host a doubleheader where they will talk to Pamela Terry about her newest, When the Moon Turns Blue, and to Ann Burt about her novel, The Dig. So listen, review, subscribe,
3: and share with a friend if you like what you hear. Yeah. And you may have heard that on Tuesday, March 7th, which is uh, a week from this coming Tuesday, the four of us will be joining more than 60 authors uh, for a virtual event hosted by Adventures by the Book to raise money for cancer research and mammograms for the uninsured. So the CEO of Susan G. Komen will be joining us, along with authors ranging from Louise Penny to Lisa Scottolini, to Alice Hoffman to Sidiqua to uh, and tons more, um, some of whom, like me, are breast cancer survivors. You can see the full list of authors, and rsvp at adventuresbythebook.com the only cost of admission is a commitment to schedule your mammogram or to encourage a loved one to do so and march 7th also happens to be the paperback release date of Christie's the wedding veil so That's hint nice. hint the event is the perfect place to pick it up because 20 percent of each book sold will go to susan g komen and that is a pretty fantastic book to get on its launch day absolutely it's a great thing
5: it's a great way to do good and be good. Right. Yeah. (laughs)
3: I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's it's going to be be great. great. It's going to be,
2: I mean, it, it's incredible. Like so many people have, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's yeah. 60,
3: 60 authors. I, I mean, I just. You got, yeah, it's going to be so much fun. I'm glad you guys are a part of it. Thank you so much. Yeah, we wouldn't miss it. Okay, <laughs> but right now we're going to see. We wish author. we
2: didn't have to do it because I know of these circumstances. Yes. But, we're yes, glad but that, here we are. Yeah. We're glad that something good, you know. Thanks. Yeah, me too. You're, me too. are turning yeah. lemons into. Lemonade. I'm turning lemons
3: into margaritas because it's margarita day yeah i think we're turning limes into margaritas there are delicious lemon margaritas i'll send Mm -hmm. you the recipe they're very good
5: i like like a pink grapefruit margarita my Mm. own self delicious Mm. yeah okay (laughs) enough about that we're going to talk to lynn cullen who happens to be my friend and my neighbor lynn is the best-selling author of several historical novels including the sisters of summit avenue Poe's, I mean, Twain's End. I almost mixed those two up. (laughs) Twain's End, Mrs. Poe, Reign of Madness, and I Am Rembrandt's Daughter.
2: Her novel, Mrs. Poe, was named a book of the week by People Magazine, a Target book club pick, an NPR 2013 great read and an indie next list selection. It was also a book of the month at Costco an Oprah book of the week and Atlanta magazine named it one of the best books of 2013. If she has a vision board too, you guys, we've got to get on this. <laughs> we have to, right? Yeah. So she wrote children's
3: books as her three daughters were growing up, which I love what I, that's kind of like goals for me. I would love to do that while well, working in a pediatric office and later on the editorial staff of a psychoanalytic. Journal at Emory University. Lynn now lives in Atlanta with her husband, their dog, and two cats.
5: And a lot of birds. So if you oh. follow, if you follow Lynn, wild birds, that's her thing. Lynn's newest novel, The Woman with the Cure, was just released yesterday. And I had the fortune to be able to be there for her great launch party. And Bonnie Garmis, whose book you might have heard of, <laughs> the author of Lessons in Chemistry, has said. Huge applause! Women have always been in science, despite those who would pretend otherwise. We can't wait to talk to Lynn about this. Alan, can you bring her on? Hi, Lynn. Hello. Hi, Lynn. Hello. Okay. You know, it's a slim amount of month, a slim amount of women of whom you can say she gave up everything and changed the world. <laughs> yeah. And but in the wor- woman with the cure. Lynn takes us to 1950s America with polio on the loose, paralyzing victims, mostly children. The medical community is in a race for a vaccine. Does that sound familiar mm. to you in any way? And then you introduce us to Dorothy Horseman, who is focused on beating her colleagues to the vaccine. But you have said that although this book is about this medical race, it's about so much more.
6: Tell us about that. What's it really about? Oh, we're jumping to that. <laughs> but, <laughs> we like to um, dive right in. <laughs> okay, yes, because actually I didn't know this until I fell into the book, um, what what it really is about. And I was uh, being blown away by your last conversation with Sadiqa, because um, my book, I realized, is really about connections, about everybody's role in finding the cure well, actually the vaccine and you know, beating polio. And I made it a point to, uh, I have my main character and she's important and, and unknown until um, I'm, I've dug her up, um, but everybody contributed. And I remember um, I've seen pictures of children sending, you know, in a dime for the March of Dimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, mothers, uh, secretaries, uh, uh, moms going door-to-door door collecting money um, and, of course, many scientists, women in science who were behind this, who were unrecognized and, you know, they knew they, knew they were never going to get recognized. Dorothy Horseman, my main character, knew she was never going to be recognized. She could hardly even get the positions that she got. She had to fight for those. It didn't matter. It didn't matter for women. They just did what they had to do. We are connected. We need each other. It's like uh, this event that you're going to. It's this power that we have when we all come together. It's a, it's amazing, and and if we only realize, I I make a point of this in the book that if we only realized how connected we are and the power of that, that we'd be kinder to each other.
3: Oh, that's yeah, such, yeah that's such a good point. You know, um, Lynn, we always like to talk about the origins of stories here, that everlasting question of where do stories come from. Uh, Patty, of course, had to deck out a little bit early, but she mentioned that the origin of this story came with an empty pool and a childhood memory. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and where this idea began?
6: Oh, um, I forgot about writing about that. (laughs) Yeah, when I, (laughs) you know, it's funny how much you forget. You write and then you, Forget it as soon as you've written it. In a lot it's of cases, the opening it's-
5: scene of the book, Lynn.
6: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that one. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Now we remember. Um, but yes, that scene I got from when I was uh, a kid. I was on my bike. I don't know. I was probably seven years old or something. And we went to a local park. It was new to me to go there, uh, you know, being so young. And, and this was uh, maybe a mile and a half away. But my friend Rosie and I went to this park and there was this, it was Riverside. I live in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana is where I grew up and it has three rivers. And alongside one of these rivers was this beach. I'd never seen this beach before. They had brought in sand and they had um, like a giant checkerboard. I remember. And they had this baby pool and all these things were empty. The baby pool was full of leaves. And I, I, Pictured that as I was writing that first scene, I so I went home and you know I asked my parents about this park, and my my mother said, well you know uh, people aren't allowed to swim there. They they shut that down during polio, and this was post polio, but the they just never opened the beach again. Wow. But that was that was how it was, which is so much like our time. They had no idea how polio worked in the body, like how you caught it, they really didn't know. And they also didn't have anything for it. So all they could do was tell you to isolate. Very similar. They also told you to wash your hands. Doesn't that sound familiar too? You know, they had the the very same um, issues, the same ways of dealing with this, with this uh, pandemic. So that's why Dorothy Horseman is so important because she's the person who figured out how the, um, virus works in the body. And it took, it took uh, the first uh, polio epidemic was in 1916. And by the time they first had their vaccine was um, 1955. So people lived with polio every summer for uh, 39 years.
3: Oh my goodness. Now, Let's talk a little bit about Dorothy. I know you originally okay. thought that this would be a story about Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin, right? Um, but that changed when you met Dorothy. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about who she is and how she came to mean so much to you. Okay.
6: Well, actually, um, my I had a friend who was an oral historian at the CDC, and she told me about Salk and Sabin's she she um, got me really interested in them. And I knew I wanted to write about that race for the vaccine, especially because these guys are such characters or at each other's throat. They should have been worried about, you know, getting rid of the disease, but no, they were more concerned about being the first with that vaccine. So from the very start, I didn't get started on this book because I knew I wanted it from a woman's point of view. And I asked my friend, what about the women? And she really didn't have anybody to, for me to uh, base a book on. And it, so I didn't get going on this book for years. Um, it, it was finally when, uh, at first, well, I took a misstep to begin with. Um, I thought, oh, you know, Sabin had a, uh, a lab assistant who worked with him very closely and she contracted polio from a tissue, uh, a human tissue with polio and she was, She got a really horrible case in which she was paralyzed. And um, instead of giving up and and giving up the work, she became his statistician. She might not have use of her legs, but um, she still used her mind. And, excuse me, I thought, you know, she's a great character. All right, from her point of view. But um, I kept, I I introduced this Dorothy Horstman. I, I heard about her. Um, I I first saw her in a Life magazine article, sorry about this, Um, and from the Miracle of Hickory in 1944, where they put up this hospital in 10 days because there was such a horrible outbreak in the Charlotte uh, area that there were no hospitals, there weren't even ambulances, People hospitals sent the children there in hearses And so there were pictures of this, you know, makeshift camp and how everybody pulled together to, um, you know, help with this outbreak. And so here was this Dorothy Horseman. Um, There, there there's this great big, tall woman. She is very tall helping this family set up a fly trap because for a while they thought flies were what carried polio. And there's another picture of her drawing blood from a, Family with the other kids looking on you know yeah. with her drawing blood, and i she just uh and there there's another picture of her lounging in a tent between patients with the other doctors, and of course she's the biggest one there, you know, and I just mm-hmm. thought i I really enjoy this woman and she <laughs> she always um in other pictures, like when she wasn't drawing blood and very serious, but she she tended to have a big smile on um, on her face, and so I started to work her in a couple of scenes and in my book that I had started. And she just took over. Oh, wow! Um, you know, you would talk over you, you guys had mentioned about um, these characters coming to your life that, that I was like, listen, guys, I had it happen to me too. Um, <laughs> she found me and the book took off. I was, you know, really kind of struggling with it. And it took off after I let her have the rain. And well, I did because of what she her contributions to all of us right now she has touched all of our lives
3: How? yeah that is
6: do you want to wow. know how
3: she touched our lives yeah <laughs> sure yes, sure yes, okay, yes, how, okay. Yes. You. Yeah.
6: um you know uh there were two ways uh one is her discovery of how the um virus uh acted in the body so she enabled uh vaccines to be um you know, how to focus the vaccine. Before her, they didn't know that the polio virus was in the blood. She knew it for nine years. She tried to tell the medical community, it's in the blood. I know it. I saw it one time and just give me a chance to, to, um, you know, find it again. And they didn't. And World War II came in and that threw off research anyhow. But eventually she prevailed. But the other way that she touched us and, and um, each one of us and our children to this day was that um, in 60, well, 59, um, they were wanting to test the oral polio vaccine. The first one, SALTS vaccine in 55, was an injectable one of the killed virus. And it was not as effective, and you would have to have lots of uh, shots, kind of like what's happened with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe it's the same sort of thing. They don't really know how COVID works, and that was the issue with, um, you know, that that first shot is just yeah. trying to throw whatever they yeah. could. So anyhow, they um, uh, Salk's vaccine ran into some trouble with um, manufacturing, and they couldn't do drug trials here for it because of that. So um, in the USSR at the time, there's no Russia; it was USSR. This is during the Cold War they were having a huge outbreak and they wanted the vaccine. And they said, we'll take whatever you could give us. Well, Sabin had just uh, had his crew working on his vaccine and he took over some vials in his pocket of this live polio virus. Thank God he didn't get in a wreck or something. But um, he he took that to them and they they, um, ended up giving it to 77 million people in the uh, largest drug trial ever. Oh wow! And so um, they gave it to all these people, and when um, everybody had received theirs, they needed someone to evaluate if the vaccine was safe and effective. And the WHO, you know, World Health Organization, called on Dorothy Horseman, even though she was unknown to everybody. Um, they they knew of her and her meticulous work, and so this one individual because the USSR would only allow in one Western person. To evaluate. So, this one woman evaluated this largest trial ever, and she did find the vaccine safe and effective. And so, that sugar cube that uh, some of us got in the 60s, you know, lined up uh, whole cities lined up to get this sugar cube. And um, the oral polio that our children got um, squeezed in their mouth, everybody got that on Dorothy Horseman's
3: say so. That's incredible. Wow, what a story.
2: I know. That's amazing. Meg is saying that there are lots of viewers sharing their memories in the comments of getting the vaccine and the liquid at school in the tiny cup. Yes.
6: <laughs> if you did that, um, if you were part of that, you remember. It's kind of yeah. like sadly, like 9-11. You remember where you were. Yeah. Um, people remember Pearl Harbor. And honestly, if you Kathy, you got it or Mary yeah. Andrews. Yeah. You you got the um yeah. the. Don't you remember exactly
5: yeah i mean i remember i started i started school in 1960 first grade and i think they lined us up in the school cafeteria and they had those little paper pleated cups exactly
3: and, um
5: nobody asked permission nobody politicized <laughs> it nobody um said there was a giant conspiracy to do anything <laughs> they just said this this will save your life and of course i, I I was at Lynn's, I was lucky enough to be at Lynn's launch party last night here in Atlanta. And I am old enough to have had classmates and even teachers who had polio. So um, when you see that, and now you see all these years mm-hmm. later, 50 years later, um, 60 some years later, um, folks who had polio were stricken with polio. Um in their childhood. And now they're dealing with what What do they call it Lynn secondhand or post
6: post polio post polio. Really yeah. Yes. It's, it's terrible mm-hmm. because here they, they beaten that a lot of people didn't even have, you know, pain or they, they beaten the whole paralysis and it comes flashing back and it's very devastating in in its second form like wow. this. But yes, if you're I remember too. There, everybody knows of people in your neighborhood yeah. who had polio, and and uh, in our age group, you know, there, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of famous people. Um, oh, Johnny Mitchell, and um, oh, it's I can, I'm old. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, there's there have been a lot of famous people. Isaac Perlman, uh, you know, the cellist. You know how he, yeah, um, you know, one of. It seems like he, one of his legs was affected by it. Um, and anyhow, it was so widespread. So people like Kathy. I, sorry, Mary Kay Andrews is it's not a it's secret. Our, it's a legend, but uh, <laughs> I've, known, I've known her a while and yeah. she's Kathy to me. So uh, anyhow, and that threw me off where I was, uh, that it was just a really... The parents were so excited. As kids, I was excited, like, yay, sugar cube, give me another. (laughs) You know, I didn't care about the vaccine. I didn't know. Um, But our parents knew, and there was no fighting it. Everybody, I have these photos I showed them last night, and people just lined up. It was every city, every town, all over, Mm -hmm. people did that. And part of it's what we were talking about earlier, pulling together. Everybody knew. That they took the vaccine and that um, that way everybody would escape it. So.
2: Well, on going back to Dorothy for a minute, there is an amazing line in this book where she says, oh, come on now. There's nothing wrong with wanting something. One has to know what what to ask for and then to go after it. Everyone and everything else be damned. Um which is pretty amazing. did that sentiment guide this book in some ways y-
6: yes um for for her, and I think really, for all of us, for going after our dreams, um, you do have to just put everything to the side if you have something major you need to achieve and Hopefully um, it's for the benefit of other people. That's when I really feel like you get air under your wings. If it's for helping others, Um, it is you just do what you have to do. And back to Dorothy, you know, she didn't get any credit. And I think I mentioned how she had a hard time getting her different jobs. And um, she was made a full professor only after she made this um, at Yale, Uh, after she made this uh, discovery that she was nominated for the Nobel prize. So, mm-hmm. so she didn't care. She was going to beat polio. Mm-hmm. She had seen the, what it had done more than anybody from flying to all the outbreaks.
2: That's incredible. I love that.
6: Yeah. You know, Copenhagen and America in the
5: 50s the settings are so immersive. I I read that you use a lot of magazines from that era when you were doing your research. Talk to us about that research and not only on the setting, but on modern day vaccines. I feel like last night you talked about uh, having the good fortune to have a friend who works at the CDC. Mm -hmm. But talk to us about the setting and and about what you've learned about modern day vaccines, if you would.
6: Hmm. Well, um, those are... Uh, that's a lot Just to talk for- about there, but um, about <laughs> you can modern. break off one thing if you want. <laughs> I, I'll break off first the modern day thing yeah. that I learned uh, from uh, Dorothy's not Dorothy's experience, but the whole polio thing. Remember I mentioned how Salk's vaccine ran into a problem. That problem Mm -hmm. had a name, they called it the Cutter Incident because one of the manufacturers, Cutter Laboratories, which now makes good mosquito repellent, but at the time (laughs) they kind of cut some corners, being cutters, they cut some corners and their vaccine caused some some polio. And that's why, there was such a problem, you know, having another drug trial because they were just so frightened by being burnt like they were. But what happened is it made the FDA stronger than ever. That's where we got our very good controls from the FDA. So when we got our, the COVID vaccine come, you know, when they first came out and I had no fear whatsoever, they might've been done quickly. That's just because they had the science it really in the works anyhow, and they could do that. But I had every bit of confidence from knowing what the FDA, how they'd learn their lessons and how very hard it is to um, get any drug, uh, you know, licensed. So that was a good lesson I learned.
5: what about, and what about the research? Was that fun for you? The going back to Copenhagen in the fifties and also of course the U.S.
6: Yes. Well, you know, I have this little game I always play with with myself. You have to do some things, you know, not go crazy writing. And I like to go to every scene in the book that every book that I do. Um, It's great for authenticity and it's just plain fun. And I go to on these like treasure hunts. Every vacation is actually a treasure hunt for my research. And um, so anyhow, I couldn't do this because a a lot of this book was um, during COVID, but I had uh, I purposely found episodes in Dorothy's life where she spent time where I had been and knew pretty well, and I had just gotten back from Denmark um, in 2019, and um, so I was able to you know use that, and also in the US, all the cities that I mentioned um, I was very familiar with too. But as far as like to get the vintage feel of things. We have such a resource. Uh, if you are writing a book in the 50s or 60s, uh, which my newest book that I'm working on is as well, there's this fabulous work resource of um, magazines. And I remember, probably you do too, yeah. Mary Kay, about uh, you know getting Time Magazine and Life Magazine, especially Life. Yeah. You learn huge about pictures. the world. Yes, you learned about the world from Life Magazine. Um, And I think we were more informed that way because they were pictures like TV, but they were also uh, world events. Now they had, of course we heard about movie stars and all that stuff in those too, but they are like uh, amber, like an insect in uh, in amber now for that time period. The advertisements I used Mm -hmm. in in my book as well, I I put a few advertisements because they said so much about the times.
2: Yeah.
6: Like one of the advertisements was uh, that I put in the book is um, it's advertising for air conditioning and how they thought this would appeal to people is they had this woman at a vanity sitting, looking at her mirror in her slip. And she was in a um, big ice cube. She was just in this <laughs> ice. Box. I thought That's what they do to women. They just put them on ice back then, <laughs> just the way they want them
5: so incredible! i love that it's a great resource get a chance to see lynn on book tour i hope you all will go you can go to her website and uh her facebook page but she's got a great presentation she does with and Mm -hmm. she shows some of those period photographs of the time and the the public service announcements with children ecstatic to get a uh, sugar cube <laughs> yes
2: yes yeah, that's so true
5: um, well, the and then
2: yeah. we we actually um we want to ask you in just a second about um your events because we know you're out and about in the real world and we also want to talk about some events that we have coming up so Hang on, because we have more to ask you.
3: (laughs) Yes. So so just a quick mention of our in-person events coming up. You will always read about them in our newsletter and on our individual websites. But for a quick recap, we will be in Columbus, Ohio on April 26th. Then we will be in Charleston, South Carolina at Buxton Books on May 1st to celebrate the launch of Patty's novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee. Then on June 6th, we'll be in Huntsville, Alabama, another place where there was a lot of scientific groundbreaking stuff took place. For my The Paris Daughter, which has nothing to do with scientific groundbreaking stuff, (laughs) Um, links are live now for both the Charleston event and the Huntsville event.
5: Right. And on July 20th, we'll all be together in Tampa at Oxford Exchange for Christie's launch of the Summer of Songbirds. And we'll have another group event in the Northeast this fall for my novella, Bright Lights, Big Christmas. And, and we are adding yet another in-person <laughs> Friends and Fiction live event in August in Beaufort, North Carolina. So stay tuned for the deets on all that.
2: August 1st, so save the date. Yep, yeah. save the date.
5: So excited. Oh, I love how you put my book title in there, Christy. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Maybe I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> no, you can do that.
5: Stay tuned for the deets on all of that. There will be more info to come on all of these. So make sure you're signed up. For our friends in fiction newsletter, and for each of our individual newsletters.
3: And I think Christy is your is your ticketing link live now too at Oxford. It Exchange? is yes, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so you can get too. Yes. tickets for any of those. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, Lynn. One last question for you: Do you have any events coming up that you want our listeners to know about? And where can people tonight find you in person and online? I guess
2: that's two questions. <laughs>
3: okay, I could handle
6: it. Um, <laughs> well, I have an event uh, in uh, um, Polly's Island. Um, on Friday, which I'm, yes, with Litchfield books. I'm really excited about that. And then I have several events for the next month in Metro Atlanta, which sounds like, oh, that's all piled on top of each other. But if you've been in Atlanta, (laughs) it's, it's like different cities. So I have, um, it's on my website and I post on Facebook and things, Instagram um, so I'll be in the metro Atlanta. And I have an event coming up that I haven't posted in, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Oh. So um, anyhow, all these are are pretty uh, local. I'm doing more things online at like that 13 city um, radio tour that oh, I wow. did this yeah. morning. That was oh. Fun. <laughs> I can't believe I'm sitting here. Where's my wine? Here are just my gosh.
2: Um, I used to do those like for my first couple of books. That was so you? fun and exhausting. It is fun,
6: it, it, it really is fun. I, I was uh scared about it, but actually, it was a ball. I'd
5: forgotten about that. that was I great. sort of feel bad about asking you one more question. I feel sort of like I should like come over there and mop, mop you up and put you to bed after such yeah. a long. 24 hours.
6: Actually, I wish you would come over and we could have some wine together. But um, (laughs) other than that, um, I'm fine. I really am fine. And you guys energize me. And incidentally, I should say to uh, viewers, if you could see, uh, go see these women. I had one event with you guys. Remember at SEBA that one time? And you guys have such chemistry. Um, It was really cool to be Mm -hmm. with you. And your chemistry showed, this was before your show, um that you had and it's you're just really fun to see in person.
5: Thank you. Well, I think I think um I hope what comes across is that we genuinely love and like each other, I can tell. And love what we're doing. We love yeah. meeting other authors. We really love lifting up women authors. Um yeah. as Dorothy Dorothy did, Dorothy, you know, Anyway, so one more question, Lynn. Okay. I want to ask you a question that's a twist on the New York Times book review question about who you would have for a dinner party. <laughs> what characters you would invite for a dinner party across all the books you've written from Mrs. Poe to Dorothy? Who would you like to invite to a dinner party and why? Dorothy.
6: Dorothy. Hands down, Mm. you know, people who have talked who knew her, I've talked to some people who knew her and they say she was the warmest. She just radiated warmth and love and, and kindness. And I need her. I need her. Um, So I would love to, to spend time with her. And she also had a great sense of humor. You could see her. She's always got this huge smile. So I think Dorothy. Well, who else
5: would you have at this dinner party? Anybody else from the books you've written? Well not Poe. No.
6: Oh <laughs> no. Um actually he was he's better than you think, but I think he was pretty into himself. That, that's that's uh that's one of the things I um didn't like so much about him. He's pretty much into himself, but um hmm, I haven't thought about that before. Oh, I know you know one of my first books uh, for adults, um The Creation of Eve. Uh, Sophonis Angasola, who was the first painter, uh, woman painter in the Renaissance. Nobody's heard of her either. In fact, they attributed her her paintings to different male painters, of course, but uh, she was really cool, and um, she lived to a really old age, and she lived in Italy and in Spain as a painter to the queen in Spain, and she also married a really young dude that she met on the ship back home to um, (laughs) Italy, so she was a She's a heck of a woman, too. Wow.
5: (laughs) Sounds like a great intimate dinner party.
6: (laughs) With plenty of wine.
5: (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Lynn, so much for being with us tonight. And y'all, don't forget, you. you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you won't miss a thing. Tune in next Wednesday when we will be joined by Hank Phillippe Ryan with her newest thriller, The House Guest. Have a oh, great I night. Love everybody. Hank.
2: Yeah. Hank's great. Great and book. I just her. finished it today.
6: <laughs> oh, she's Thanks, she's a wonderful person. You're going to have a
2: ball.
6: Thank you so much. You guys are great. Oh, Good night, great. Thank you.
3: Good night, everybody.
0: Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're
2: here. Produced by Audovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.